John chapter 3, 31 through 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whatever kind of personality test or traits profile I've taken, the results always come out the same. And one of the most confusing aspects of these tests with regard to me is on the so-called introvert-extrovert spectrum. Because you see, I am actually quite the introvert, unless... I know what I'm talking about. I love to talk if I at least perceive myself as having something true and valuable to say, some unique contribution. And then when that happens, well, as you all know, you can't shut me up. People speak best of what they know. For good and ill, the fact of my personality is I will sometimes speak passionately about things that I know well. And I will speak equally passionately about things that I've heard from others. (laughs) But people speak best of what they know. When someone describes a trip to a foreign country or a new vacation destination, what would you rather hear? The speech of someone who watched a documentary or saw pictures on the internet? Or the passionate delivery of someone who saw it with their own eyes? What about when someone is offering you sympathy? Is it more effective to hear it from someone who thinks pain is an academic construct or from someone who's experienced heart-wrenching loss of their own. The encouragement to press on and persevere in a difficult physical task. You know, as much as I can encourage people to press on in their workout routines and exercise, it's much more effective from someone who actually does it themselves and knows what it's like to press through that People speak best of what they know. Now, every word of Scripture is God's word. And many of the words of Scripture also belong to someone else. Several months ago, we read Ecclesiastes. And in that book, God is speaking. So is Kohelet, the teacher. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, God is speaking. And so is Paul. In narrative books like John, there can be a lot of speakers. The author quotes various people in the story. Ruth said this, Naomi said that, and God is speaking. And occasionally in scripture, while God is still speaking, 
The human author also speaks in a very personal way, almost as kind of a narrator giving their take or summary, drawing attention to something that is impressed upon their heart by the Holy Spirit. It is the perfect, inspired, infallible word of God. They, the scripture writers had a benefit we don't have of always being right in what they wrote. And it is also the words of one of God's servants. In this case, John. This morning's text, like verses 16 through 21 before, is a narrative reflection from the gospel writer. Before, he relayed the story of Nicodemus. He gave Nicodemus words and Christ words, and then he stopped in verse 16 to reflect on the the love of God in Christ. And now, after the story of John the Baptist's proclamation and this interaction that John has with his disciples, this claim that he must decrease and Christ must increase, John again does this, giving us a a narrative perspective. The evangelist has something to say directly to us. And he begins by answering the question of why. Why must Christ increase? And it's because he is from above. And he who is from above is above all. Now there's no criticism here. Everyone else is from earth, of the earth. Jesus is above and is above all. Jesus was and is fully man, human in every way that we are, but he is not of the earth. He's from above. And verse 32, he speaks as one from above. As I said, there's no criticism here. It's important to understand what John is not saying. He's not diminishing the value of his own words or of John the Baptist's. It was in 1899 that a man named Louis Klopsch published the first red-letter edition of the Bible, where the words of Jesus are in red text with all else in black. And he meant well, paying honor to Christ But the unintended consequence of the red-letter edition of the Bible is that some uh, some Christians in practice think that there's more truth in the red-letter words than in the black ones. That's not what John the Evangelist is saying. Think of how highly he's already spoken of John the Baptist and of his words. And surely John believes that the words he's writing are from God, are divinely inspired. After all, he says he wrote his gospel that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by uh, believing you may have life in his name. There's nothing that's more important than what John has to say in this gospel. When we read the words of Moses or Solomon or that beautiful psalm we just sung of David, the gospel writers, Paul, Peter, all the human authors of scripture, we are reading words that can be trusted. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God may be complete. It says we need nothing more than this word working in us by the spirit to make us godly, to make us ready for the day of Christ's coming. No, John is not minimizing the value or the effectiveness or the truth of any of the words of Scripture. But he is saying something important about Jesus' words, which do, in one way, stand in contrast 
to John the Baptist and John the Evangelist and everyone else's. What the Baptist said of God was true and helpful. He called people to repent of their sins. He called them to the cleansing waters of baptism. This is good and true and useful stuff. So how can it be that what Jesus says is greater than this? Why must John increase, uh, decrease and Christ increase if what John is saying is already good and true and useful? And it's only because John's testimony is based on another. He who is above all. And Jesus' testimony is based on what he himself has seen and heard. The mysterious will of the Father. I've heard enough stories from the Hoffers the last few weeks about the Western National Parks that I feel like I can describe them to you with accuracy. But I haven't seen them. I've talked with Megan and Justin over the years, and I feel like I could describe to someone with some accuracy what normal daily life living in London is like. But I've never done it. Through stories, pictures, research, documentaries, people are well able to speak, even truthfully, about things they've never experienced. And while in no way minimizing those accounts, can't we also say there's something more significant about hearing it from the source? It's not a magic bullet, of course. As John says in verse 32, though Jesus is speaking firsthand of God's saving plan, no one receives his testimony. Now, just as a side note, this is another place in John to notice that in his style of writing, he's not burdened by the modern insistence on linguistic precision. That is, obviously there were exceptions. John himself received Jesus' testimony and began to follow him as a disciple. John is making a point. He's not counting votes for an election. In his writing, all does not always mean all. Not every single one. Just as here, no one does not mean no one without exception. It was tragic when they didn't believe Moses and the prophets. It was tragic when they didn't believe John the Baptist. And now... Even though Jesus is speaking of what he's heard and seen firsthand, they do not believe him either. Verses 33 and 34 add more reasons why this rejection of God's revelation in Christ is so tragic. And one comes again by comparison with God's other messengers, not minimizing their work, but basically saying if the other messengers of God's words were good and true and useful, how much more so were those of Jesus who saw it firsthand? After all, as one teacher put it, throughout redemptive history, God spoke to his people through many messengers. Each received the measure of the spirit that was required for his or her assigned task, but not so to Jesus. It says God gives Jesus the spirit with out limit. Remember that the Holy Spirit is always at work in God's messengers in the Old New Testaments even today as I preach, but it is only of Jesus that the scriptures say the Holy Spirit descended and remained. All of scripture's other writers were under the power of the Holy Spirit. I preach to you under the power of the Holy Spirit. You speak truth of scripture to one another under the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus' relationship with the Spirit was utterly unique. 
In the mysterious counsels of the Father's will, only the Son was sent forth as God's supreme revelation. And only the Spirit enables us to receive it, to hear and to understand and to believe. I read this week, even the unfolding of redemptive history finds its ultimate source in the loving relationship of the Trinity. Now, a brief aside on this point, because it speaks to one of the thorny issues of our day and in the church. Differences in roles and responsibilities of men and women. Scripture teaches from its very first page that men and women were both specially created by God and are equal in dignity and in value. They are both created in his image. Men and women both fell into complete and total rebellion against God. Both are incapable of saving themselves. Both can be regenerated by the Holy Spirit in equal measure and enabled by that same Spirit to put sin to death as we're made perfect for the day of his coming. Christian men and Christian women are co-heirs with Christ and share equally in his glory in the world that is to come. But men and women are not the same. We are not interchangeable. And in God's design, the mysterious counsels of the Father's will, we are given different roles and different responsibilities. And the modern world and the modern church says this cannot be because it's not possible to be of equal worth and honor while also being denied certain responsibilities and opportunities. And yet look at what this passage and many others teach us about the Trinity itself. That that's exactly how things work within the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all God. They are all equally God. And they are therefore equal in dignity, in value, in glory, in everything else we can imagine. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now look at how that plays out in this verse. The Father is the one who sins. The Son, Jesus, is the one who is sent. The Spirit does not have the same responsibilities and opportunities as the Son. He has his own role to play, again, within the mystery of the Father's will. The Son and the Spirit obey the Father. It's all throughout this gospel. God obeys And yet all of this differentiation of role and responsibility, it takes place within the context of complete and absolute love. None of them feel as though their dignity and worth is threatened by what is or what is not their work to do. And it seems to me that this is possible because of the Father's perfect love for the Son and the Spirit. So much resistance to this doctrine in Christian homes and in Christian churches is surely because those who are assigned headship are not as effective at consistently demonstrating godly love as is God the Father. Now, besides the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit with Jesus, John gives another reason why everyone's rejection of him is particularly tragic. What did God the Father say 
to John the Baptist in this narrative and for everyone to hear at Jesus' baptism. God the Father said, this is my beloved son. This Jesus of Nazareth is the one that I have sent. We've said several times now from John that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. The author of Hebrews will call him the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is the one from heaven, not from earth. The one who speaks of what he's seen. He's been in the inner councils of God from all eternity. And this Jesus of Nazareth is the one of whom God the Father said, this is my beloved son. So what does that mean? Well, it means if you believe Jesus, what he says, you are believing God the Father. It's verse 33. You're saying that God the Father is true, was right when he said, this is my beloved son. And so by extension, if you reject Jesus's testimony, you are saying that God has lied. God said Jesus was the son. God said Jesus was to be believed. But if you say, no, he isn't, then you're very simply calling God a liar. Verse 33 describes setting a seal. Kids, I know that some of you have seen and some of you even have those wax seal kits for letters. It's a pretty cool thing. I never do it, but I always love it when I get one. You use a candle to melt some wax on the opening of the envelope, and then you press into that wax with a seal that's only yours. Maybe it's your initial or a family crest or just some picture that's unique to you that you like. And the seal proves to the person who gets the letter that whatever's inside came from you. No one could have opened it and changed what you wrote with their own words. If they had, the seal would be broken. And no one could have forged the letter claiming that it's from you when it's not because your seal is on it. And John says that when we believe Jesus, we set our seals. We testify that God is true. Whenever we do what Christ has called us to do, rather than what's easier, rather than what the world does, rather than what's more popular with the crowd, whenever we say, no, Christ's word is true and I will do it, we set our seal that God is true. When we tell the truth, even when it might get us in trouble, we set our seal that God is true. When we help rather than ridicule the person who is struggling, we set our seal that God is true. When we apologize because we've acted selfishly towards someone else, we set our seal that God is true. When we forgive even someone who has deeply hurt us, we set our seal that God is true. And this is because Christ himself told us to do these things. He told us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. He told us to preserve our lives by remembering his word. 
And many of the things he told us to do seem old-fashioned to most people in the world. They seem desperately out of touch or too strict or too hard or not enough fun. And yet when we do them, we set our seal that God is true. The passage ends with John's summary of all that we've learned through Jesus to this point. And it's appropriate then that what was Jesus's central theme is also John's two alternatives for a human life. There is faith, the genuine faith that saves, and there is disobedience, and that's all there is. There is no third way. God's judgment against disobedience was expressed in principle in verses 19 and 20, but here it's expressed in frightening detail. And less that we ever think That God's judgment is unfair or unjust or unwarranted. Remember its context. Here's how one pastor puts it. God's wrath is not some impersonal principle of retribution. It is the personal response of a holy God who comes to his own world, sadly fallen into rebellion, and finds few who want anything to do with him. God's judgment is for those who have rebelled against him in thought, word, and deed. They have turned aside from his loving direction and and care. And they've said that God's words are lies. They've rejected the son he sent to save. They've gladly traded an eternal birthright for the pleasure of a single meal. John points out here that though many are coming to Jesus, most are not coming to follow him, but his miracles. One the commentary author I read calls them thrill seekers. They follow Jesus just because they're looking for a good story. They simply believe in him as a miracle worker. They don't gain everlasting life. That is for those who have an abiding faith in the Son. It's given on those who trust God and set their seal that God is true. And as we read about these sons of disobedience... We must so quickly say there, but for the grace of God, go I. At heart, I was a rebel against God, as were you. Some of us carried that long into adulthood. Some, especially of you covenant children, God converted and brought to himself far sooner. Thanks be to God, you may not even remember the days when you were a rebel against God's throne. But regardless of age, this is something none of us could do ourselves. And we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Following the course of this world, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This true and abiding faith, this faith which saves, this faith which God gives, notice that it's contrasted here not just against unbelief, but against disobedience, which is unbelief. Through disobedience to God's revealed will, we call God a liar, just as those who rejected Christ. 
It's by obedience, by following his word, by believing, by the power of the spirit that we set our seals that God is true. Now tie this back to the beginning. What does this mean for your testimony? Why was Jesus' testimony as great as the Baptist was, as great as the evangelist was, why was Jesus' testimony that much greater? Because he spoke of what he had seen. As the world hears from you, the world inside your household and out of it, as the world hears from you, What testimony are they hearing? Are they seeing someone who lives, who sets their seal on the truth of God's word, not just because they read it in a book or because they feel like they ought to, but because they've seen it with their own eyes? Are they hearing and experiencing forgiveness, not just from someone who's been told what it's like to forgive, but someone who understands to their core what it is to be forgiven? Are they hearing a testimony of joy and gratitude, not from someone who emotes positivity or read self-help books on the subject, but from someone whose strength is from the joy of the Lord? from someone who lives every day with gratefulness to God resounding in their hearts. Cross-bearing, submission, offers of help, self-sacrifice. What do people hear in our testimony of these things? Abstract concepts or first-hand accounts of those who have experienced them with their own eyes? When we trust God in all circumstances, it doesn't have to be because someone else told us we should. It can be because we have seen and heard ourselves that the Father has given all things into the Son's hands. And what of peace? The world pursues peace through means that can never, ever achieve it. The worldly church cries peace, peace where there is no peace. But our testimony of peace need not be so forced or so abstract. Because the peace of Christ is ours. And if the peace of God rules in our hearts, we can testify to that peace in a powerful and first hand way. Christians, obey the son. Set your seal that God is true in every area of your life. Testify to the peace of God. Because if you are in Christ, you don't have to speculate what that would be like. You don't have to reflect someone else's story. You can tell your own. Speak of what you've seen and heard. Because in Christ, your testimony is sure.